The Standard Deviations podcast is a weekly production that looks at money, mind, and meaning, all through a psychological lens. Each week, psychologist and New York Times bestselling author Dr. Daniel Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest, experts in everything from finance to literature to wellness. Support for Standard Deviations comes from the Guardian Network. You know the old saying, a penny saved is a penny earned? How many pennies would you earn if you skipped your next venti iced mocha half-calf latte or that burger that needed five napkins? Over a lifetime, they add up. Like putting a kid through college add up. Find out where your priorities lie by playing the cash stash dash at livingconfidently.com slash play. Hello, and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. I am joined today by Bob Seawright to talk about the top 10 ways to deal with behavioral biases. Bob is the CIO of Madison Avenue Securities and is the author of the Above the Market blog and widely considered to be the king of long-form behavioral finance blogging. Welcome to the show, Bob. If I'm the king of long-form blogging, it probably means there are like two of us. (laughs) <laughs> right. Hey, look, look, you just, just own it. Just take the compliment, man. <laughs> That's it. I'll take it. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, so Bob, you, uh, you're a fascinating guy, uh, and I'm sure there's much more to you than, than shows up on the professional bio. So tell, tell us something about you that, that listeners may not know if they, if they read your blog. Well, it depends if, if they read Twitter too, they know I'm a a grandparent, and I, of course, uh, indulge my grandchildren at every opportunity. Um, we are uh, baseball and basketball fans, and uh, you can you can find us uh, going to Padres games here in San Diego, or uh, all my grandchildren, all my three children and their spouses and families live on the East Coast near Washington, D.C., and, and you may find us at Nats games as well. Well, you are welcome to a Braves game anytime you're in Atlanta, and we I would love to make that happen because I'm I've bought a bunch of tickets today, so I'm I share your enthusiasm for for what's just a couple of weeks down the road. Yeah, I'm psyched about it. Yeah, Manny Machado is in San Diego, and that's pretty great. <laughs> Feels you can feel you can feel the force getting stronger by by the moment. I love it. Yes, we are we are hoping for the rarefied air of a 500 season this year. <laughs> so, so Bob, you know, you've, you've made your mark, at least with the blog on the behavioral side of the business. What, what drew you to this weird intersection of, of finance and, and psychology? Uh, partly interest. It's a fascinating subject. Uh, it's, it's fun to uh, look at human foibles and human craziness. Um, if it's not so great thinking about it in the context of yourself, uh, but um, also for for very practical reasons, I've I've lived almost every behavioral bias um, in investing or in life generally, and uh, I've been struggling uh, to find ways to try to deal with it, uh, and so uh, in. As I've I've told the story before, that I mostly started the blog as a as a sort of commitment device uh, to force me to to commit to some decisions and opinions uh, rather than just research around them and feel strongly both ways like the old Billy Martin Miller Lite commercials. Uh, and so, uh, it forced me to make a commitment, and secondly, uh, as a way to save research that I had done in a, in a way that's easily accessible. Um, and, and that, that just seemed to be the, uh, the research areas that I was interested in above and beyond what I was doing for my day job. And it tended to show up on the blog because writing is the best way in the world to figure out what you think. Yeah. Pe- people ask me why I write um, you know, write so many books, and 
uh, you know, it's it's certainly not for the money. So I find that uh, you know, I take uh, I take Richard Feynman's advice. I love what Richard Feynman used to do. With he he would famously ask people, uh, you know, if they knew how a toilet worked, and you know, most most people would go, yeah, you know, I I use a toilet a couple times a day. I know how a toilet works. And then he go, oh, okay, well, good. I don't teach me about it. And then you. <laughs> sort of stutter and stammer and you realize you have no idea how a toilet works or a TV or a microwave or, you know, any of the other things that you use a hundred times a day. So I, I find too that writing is is the surest way to help me understand what I actually believe and what I don't believe. And even probably more importantly, the surest way to find out where you're, where the gaps in your knowledge are and what you don't know. That, that's exactly Cause as soon, right. Because as soon as you start to write it, uh, if you have any self-awareness at all, you can say, you can see and say, holy cow, I'm missing something here. Yeah, exactly. Identify gaps in knowledge. If you can't teach it, you know, if you can't teach it to one of your, you know, my kids, your grandkids, you, you just don't know it well enough yet. That so, sounds right to me. Yeah. So, so Bob, the tagline of your blog above the market is information is cheap. Meaning is expensive. Uh, what, what do you mean by that? Uh, well, let me let me illustrate it with a story. Uh, through most of recorded history, um, information was really expensive. There wasn't a lot of it. Uh, an example I like to use um, is um, in the Civil War. Uh, the second most uh, important battle, other than Gettysburg. Uh, and I'm blanking on the name of it now, but you'll correct me probably. Um, it, it was uh, before U.S. Grant became the lead uh, union general, and um, they were coming, and Lee had crossed up into Maryland, and it, there was going to be a big fight. And the uh, one of the Confederate generals had left a copy of Lee's letter with the overall battle plan in a cigar case, and it was found by a, a common soldier and uh, worked its way up the chain of command of, uni of the Union generals. And that knowledge, while not used nearly as effectively as it could have been, um, made a big difference in the fight. It allowed the battle to be a draw, and for the Union to live to fight another day, one of the most meaningful days in American history. It allowed Lincoln to issue the uh, Emancipation Proclamation and kept the, kept the war going. Um, and in that day, that one piece of information uh, was wildly important. And, you know, if you, I like to visit Civil War battles and read about them, and, and there was very little information. Uh, in Gettysburg, for example, uh, Lee couldn't get a hold of his cavalry. Jeb Stuart was making this big, long ride. He didn't know where they were and couldn't get a hold of them, and it was a big uh, detriment to his uh, battle efforts and contributed significantly to uh, that great Confederate loss on the, what became the high-water mark of the Confederacy. They didn't have information. There wasn't a lot of it. Today, information is everywhere. Uh, uh, knowledge is doubling, depending on who you ask, something like every 18 months or so. Uh, there's an enormous amounts of information and more all the time, computerized everything. Uh, and because of that, because in, there's so much more information, I describe it as cheap and getting cheaper. But that doesn't mean uh, we know what to do with it. And so interpreting the, the facts, the information, uh, is incredibly important and getting more important. Separating signal from noise uh, is increasingly difficult. And so we're going to talk about uh, today, spend some time with a, with a post you wrote on, on how to separate signal from noise, but a, a statistic that has stuck with me from, this is now a few years old, uh, a Google executive uh, was talking and said that we now create as much information every two days 
as we did in the previous 2000 years, which was just staggering to me. And, you know, to, I think to your point, a lot of it is, you know, memes and cat videos, but, you know, um, you know, it's not, it's not all important information, but there's just an overwhelming uh, amount of information. So we have a, a glut of information and a, and a dearth of meaning. And I think that's where some of the, the lessons of behavioral finance come in. Uh, so let's talk about some of those from, from your post, the top 10 ways to deal with behavioral biases. Now, Bob, when I, when I began to prepare for our conversation today, I, you know, was going through your, uh, through your post, many of which I had, had read previously, and I was immediately struck by how you were just going to have to come back on the show because we, you know, we have too many, uh, too many points of agreement, too, too many things to talk about. But I want to focus on this, this list of 10 today, and we'll, we'll cover probably half of them. One one of the early uh, one of the early admonitions you placed in the list was to to focus on the data. Now, this idea of focusing on the data, I have, I of course agree with this, but I, I want to drill down a bit uh, because the more that I learn about uh, you know human psychology and the more I learn about how that intersects with data and research methods, the the more I realize that data is filtered through our own personal lenses. Uh, so that you know, no matter how objective we want the data to be, you 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 never walk through the same river twice. And in, in effect, with with respect to how that data uh, coincides with a person at, at a snapshot in time. So how can how can we rely on the data, but learn to do so in a way that's as objective as possible? Well, I would even suggest you can't go through the same river once. But uh, <laughs> that's a, that's a separate argument. Uh, the uh, I agree with you. How we look at data is inherently subjective. And even uh, how any of us decides what to study uh, has an immense impact on what we conclude. And so uh, we always have to be not just suspicious of the data and where it came from, but also why we don't have other data or why this data is all there is. Um, in this area, as in every area, uh, the scientific method is immensely um, illuminating. And the better we can, we can implement it, uh, and I mean broadly, generally, uh, from a framework standpoint, I don't mean uh, drawing up hypotheses and and the like formally all the time. But if we use uh, something like the scientific method to test our assumptions and to get other people to test our assumptions, always evaluating our priors and our conclusions and the data itself, uh, we're going to have a better chance of success. But you're right. Uh, it's all too easy for us to say uh, the the data's right here, I've evaluated properly, and oh, by the way, when the data supports what I already thought, I'm, of, I'm, in, I'm naturally going to agree with it, and that's dangerous. It, it, it is, and you know, you make a great point. Now, I was focused more on the, interp the, you know, the subjective uh, interpretation of the data, but you make an excellent point that even uh, the sources we, we choose to draw data from are, you know, the the way that we cultivate those sources in our, in our own process is highly subjective too. How do you ensure in your own life, uh, both as you're trying to form professional and personal beliefs that you're drawing from the, the complete array of available sources? Uh, I can't ensure it. Uh, what I try to do is test my priors. Um, I try to find, I try to spend more time with sources, especially interpretational sources that, agree, that disagree with me than with those that agree with me. And I try to read as widely, as broadly, and as deeply as I can. Um, you know, in, in today's world, much of what passes for objective research or objective commentary um, is is glorified fan service and and i'm frustrated by that but i'm also susceptible to it um it it's 
shockingly easy to to um, pretend that we're not susceptible to this to the same thing we're complaining about in others. So, you know, a, a second uh, a second recommendation that you give is to actively seek out dissenting opinions, and so I think this is um, so crucial and it's so important in the time we live in. Uh, in my books, I've cited research from Ohio State that shows that people spend significant, uh, significantly longer reading uh, an article if they agree with it. Uh, no surprise there. I also cited research that shows that a, a majority of people uh, didn't know anyone who was voting for their non-preferred uh, political candidate in the last uh, presidential election. So, you know, most Trump voters didn't know uh, have a single friend who was voting for Clinton and, and vice versa. And so we, we, I think, are increasingly uh, able to segment ourselves uh, ideologically, geographically. Um, how, do we, how do we seek out dissenting opinions in this type of environment? I, I used to think, I'm not so sure now, but I used to think a formalized red team process within an, within an institutional setting uh, could be really effective. The military uses a red team uh, to to test plans and decisions, uh, the medieval church used a devil's advocate, which was actually quite a formalized, uh, careful process to uh, question whether whether saint applicants were really worthy. Uh, and and I used to think having some kind of formal red team within an institution uh, would be the way to go. But I have. I have since tended to think that 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 process can become routine and uh, can become almost rote, as in, yeah, 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 they're just going through the the negatives, but are they really negative? I've since come around to the idea that uh, leadership in a group needs to empower the people that work for them to disagree with them. Um, and it's it's kind of uh, what Ray Dalio talks about, but I'm not convinced uh, culturally that uh, Ray gets questioned a lot. I suspect the underlings there do. Um, I doubt that he does. And it takes a uh, quite a special leader t- to to both say and mean, I want you to come at me when you disagree, but even more so not to punish people for it later. Uh, and, and so what I've since, since come to think is that, is that you, we need to empower the people around us. We need to work more in teams to empower the people around us to disagree and to make sure our teams are really diverse. If our firms or our faculties or our staffs or our uh, working groups, if we all look like each other, if we're all uh, Clinton voters or all Trump voters or whatever, uh, it's pretty hard to question priors. Uh, You need people with significantly different points of view. Uh, And so if I were, you know, if, if I were, uh, running an investment firm, and I was I was committed to active management. I'd want a, a really smart uh, believer in passive management uh, to be working with me. And it takes a lot of trust and guts and effort to make that work. Um, but I'm convinced of its possibilities. Now, one thing, uh, one thing I struggle with that I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you can help me with, I guess, here, just some free consulting, some free therapy for me, perhaps, is I, I struggle... You get what you pay for. That, that is true. That is true. I struggle sometimes to know, uh, you know, when I ought to be seeking out a dissenting opinion and when, when perhaps the science is so settled that, that seeking out a dissenting opinion sort of dignifies stupidity. You know, I you know I think the 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 one that comes to to mind right now because it's topical, it's in the news, is something like vaccinations. Like I you know I I vaccinate my children. Um, there are people that that dissent from me on that opinion, 
and, and I just think they're wrong. And I just think, you know, um, so I, I don't feel like I, I really need to hear their opinion because I feel like the science is somewhat settled on that matter. Uh, but, but of course, you know, you could use a thousand other examples where, yeah, of course, of course I think they're wrong. Uh, because, you know, I, I think other people are wrong about other things that I, that I am likely wrong myself about. So how do you discern between uh, what, what dissenting opinions need, need consideration and which are, are sort of settled? Well, there are, there are I think, a couple of ways to, dis- to make some distinctions here that are helpful. Uh, there's a difference between having an opinion and having an informed opinion. Um, I when I when I talk about diversity, I don't mean um, a diver, you know diversity diversity like uh, a college freshman dorm uh, rap session where people are sitting around um, arguing about stuff. Uh, I'm I'm thinking more of people who are who are deeply educated in the subject we're talking about and making sure I hear out uh, those who disagree in whole or in part. Uh, Secondly, in most places in the world, uh, we actually have to act on what we do. Uh, We have to make investment decisions. We have to decide if we're going to vaccinate our kids or not. And we make the best decision we can based on the best information we have at the time. Now, some some decisions, like investment decisions, are ongoing. And so uh, once I've made a decision, and I hope, uh, you know, from a personal standpoint, putting, putting my portfolio away and not thinking about it, because uh, the more I look, the more I'll be tempted to trade, and the more I'll trade, the more mistakes I'll make. Um, but once I've made that decision, that doesn't mean uh, if some new ideas come up or, or at least are argued for that I won't give them the time of day. Um, so I guess the two distinctions I'd make are number one, you don't have to listen to every opinion, uh, but you should listen to every informed opinion. And I realize that, that that distinction is potentially problematic because I will tend to dismiss as uninformed opinions that aren't mine, uh, but second, but secondly, to uh, uh, to make decisions, but to still uh, continue to be open and not to treat the the matter as closed just because I've decided it. Yes, absolutely. Yes, not not all. It, it is tricky for just the reason you said, because of course, not all opinions are, are created equal. Not all opinions are equally well informed, and yet that's just the thing a biased individual would say, right? <laughs> so yep. it is it is both truth and a way that we can lie to ourselves, and that's what makes it such a complicated matter. I think. Yes, and and the and the. Uh, the, the record of our being able to overcome this stuff in meaningful ways is disappointing at best. <laughs> yes, yes. So a, a third piece of advice you give is to focus on process. And I, I got an interesting call from a friend of mine who's, of course, you know, not not a financial professional. The other day, and she was seeking guidance about how to allocate her her four hundred one k at her new workplace. And she said, well, you know, um, I, I was busy. It was taking me a couple of hours to get back to her. And she said, you know what, never mind. Uh, I'm just going to look at the, the funds that have done well, for, for uh, done the best for the past five years, and I'm just going to go with those. And I went, ah, you know, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Like, no, no, no. Google, pr- <laughs> Google, Google performance chasing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Google mean reversion, Google performance chasing, you know, no, 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 no. Um, So, you know, then that kind of shook me from my complacency and we had a good conversation. But, you know, what she was doing is is entirely uh, sensible in in almost every other endeavor. Like, look, I'm just going to look at the outcomes. You know, if you're if you're buying a car, like, you know, how does the car perform? I'll, I'll buy the high performing car. So how do we shake this natural human inclination to do what my friend was doing and, and look at performance and take more of a process orientation uh, when that's not naturally how we're wired? It's, it's fascinating how that plays out 
in life. Um, if if you sit through an investment pitch, whether it's retail to institutional, you know the literature always has stamped on it. Uh, past performance is not indicative of future results, and and every pitch begins with at that, least when it's good. Let me show you my performance. Right, absolutely. <laughs> and and it's it's really difficult. And I know, um, I I think I remember in your book, the behavioral investor, you even advocated uh, paying. Uh, managers for adhering to a process rather than from any sort of performance, and I think that's a that absolutely makes sense. Um, subject only to uh, the potential problems of having a lousy process, <laughs> right. and and it's e- it's easy to play to blame a lousy result on luck, you know, randomness. Um, but sometimes it's because your process is bad and and that can be more difficult to evaluate. Um, I talk all the time about uh, there are pro- there are biases with us, uh, problems with us. There are also problems with the world and and one of them is randomness. Randomness is a much bigger uh, influence on events than we want to believe and so uh, you know you can you can have great results for five or even ten years in a row and just be lucky there's an old uh, there's an old uh, story in our business about uh, some would-be guru who uh, sent out 5,000 letters uh, to prospects um, half of which uh, pitched one um, high volatility idea and the other half the opposite of it. And then um, after it had moved one way or the other, he threw out the names of the people he'd sent the wrong advice to. And he repeats that um, a few more times. And after, you know, after he's, he's winnowed it down from uh, 5,000 to a few hundred, he has folks who are totally committed to to his genius uh, and who, when they give him the money, are shocked that, that the winning streak doesn't continue. Um, there is way more randomness in investment returns than we want to believe. So to get back to your more specific question, how do you, how do you make sure, um, well, you you mostly have to back into it. Uh, you do the best you can uh, to improve your process. You try not to pay attention to the outcomes, um, but uh, if you if you um, nudge yourself in in a better direction by making sure you have skin in the game, for example, uh, that will that will improve your motivation to improve your process. Uh, but um, it's really hard, you know, because we we want to be really smart and say uh, it was all me when the results are good, and we want to bl- blame bad luck when the when the when the results are bad. You can see that with every winning and losing coach in their post game press conference. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so you give another example of one of the things you advise investors to do is to avoid the noise. Now, this is, of course, uh, sens- sensible advice, but we also have this problem of, of needing to educate ourselves. You know, even the, the, the most mom and pop retail investor uh, needs to, to educate themselves a bit. So how do we go about the process of learning about markets uh, without getting inundated by some of the noise that that attends studying markets, well, you can start by turning off CNBC, and you can continue that by uh, not reading, you know, the various the various uh, individual investor magazines that are talking about you know the hot stocks to own for 2019. Um, and you know, books always win. Uh, and if it's if it's not a new book, 
uh, that has stood the test of time, so much the better. And there are any number of good ones that can give you uh, enough knowledge. And you, you talked about, you know, mom and pop. Uh, mom and pop don't need to know a lot. They need to know enough to make sure they're not getting scammed. Um, but they don't, I mean, you and I are really interested in this stuff. They don't need to be. And in fact, they'd be better off uh, putting a good financial plan in place and forgetting about it. Uh, there's a there's a great story um, that I think is true, but it's really difficult to confirm. Somewhere around 2014 or so, uh, Fidelity was rumored to have uh, sliced and diced all of their accounts in every possible way to try to find out which kind of accounts performed best over long periods of time. And they, and according to the story, they ended up scuttling the research because they found their orphan accounts performed by far the best. Uh, and that actually makes sense. Um, because uh, if, if we do the right thing and we've made the right decision in terms of uh, how to invest, we'd be best off forgetting about it. Uh, uh, for a significant period of time and then only we'll to make adjustments as our life circumstances change uh, not so much uh, because of, of changes in our investment philosophy. Uh, so uh, in that way, too much interest or knowledge can even be a dangerous thing. Uh, so I, I would say read uh, some of the obvious good books about how to do it uh, if you must read more often, uh, read Jason Zweig every weekend in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and and if you pay attention to that and nothing else, uh, you'll probably do a pretty good job. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I first encountered that Fidelity study you mentioned in Jim O'Shaughnessy's uh, What Works on Wall Street book. And I think a number of people have tried to verify whether or not it's apocryphal. And it's like, it's one of those things that I just I just don't even dig because I love the story so much and the, <laughs> the I love the story so much and the the truth that it portrays is is so resonant and so consistent with my own experience uh, that I want it to be true even though I've not been able to independently verify it myself either. Well, it total it totally lines up with our priors. So of course we want it to be true. <laughs> yeah. Like don't dig, I'm not going to dig too hard because I love it. I love it too much. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting. I tell people this and I tell my friends who don't work in the industry, this and in a no one wants to believe me, but you could read, I mean, you could take a long weekend and read, you know, three, three or four books uh, on investing some of the classics and you could get, you know, 98% of the way there. I mean, you could you could understand effectively all you ever need to know uh, to to manage a good investment life and a good financial life. Uh, the the point of diminishing returns for investment knowledge comes so very quickly, and I I agree with you that a lot of times for for average folks the best the best use of this is to know who to hire, you know, to know yep. what to ask for, to know who you know how to advocate. Just the same way that you want to be an advocate for yourself with with a medical doctor, you want to be an advocate for yourself uh, with a financial professional. And you know, reading two to five really good books will will get you there. Uh, and ev everyone wants to think that you know it's it's a fascinating thing. I often say that my my need to keep a close eye on markets because I'll be asked to opine on one thing or another by by some news outlet. My need to keep keep an eye on markets is actually to my detriment uh, as, as an investor, because it's just, it's sort of unnecessary noise and it's an occupational hazard of mine. Uh, but yeah, if you're, if you're listening and you don't work in the industry, find yourself two or three good books. And like, like Bob said, turn it, turn it off and go, you know, go devote yourself to more important things like baseball. Right. Exactly. Well, think about 1987. There was this enormous uh, crash uh, in 1987, but uh, by the end of the year, it was kind of a ho hum year. And if so, if you had you had uh, looked at your statement uh, on January 1st, 1987, and didn't look again till January 1st, 1988, you would have said, "Ah, eh, pretty ordinary ho hum year." Uh, 
Right. And and yet, if you paid attention all the time uh, and watched the news and everything else, and of course, it's pretty hard not to. Uh, but if if you pay attention, you'd have thought, holy cow, this was an incredible wild ride. Yeah, absolutely. So another one of your pieces of advice is to to track your mistakes. And I thought this was so interesting because there was a, there was research I cited in the behavioral investor. Uh, they took people that they thought had outperformed the market. So uh, people who self-reported having outperformed the market. And a third and actually of, looked at their statements. Yeah, they looked at their statements, and a, and a third yeah. of them had underperformed by five percent or more, uh, and and a, a quarter of them, another quarter of them, had underperformed by fifteen percent or more. It's like you know, fairly fairly dramatically, and so we misremember our behavior all the time, and and our bias tends to be towards rosy retrospection. We we tend to give ourselves more more credit than we deserve. So t- talk to us about how you track mistakes and how you can. Uh, how you can be cognizant of your mistakes without being defined by them. Because I think people, you know, people have a natural bent towards overconfidence and don't want to, you know, they listen to their moms when their mom said, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. So how can you be cognizant of your, of your errors without becoming, uh, you know, destroyed by them, I guess? Well, my, my working illustration in this uh, comes from my, my much better half. She teaches fifth grade, and and she talks about about fifth graders playing basketball at lunchtime, and uh, it's almost always the first one across half court shoots. There's no passing, there is no team play whatsoever, and they all think they're going to the NBA. And uh, you know, it is it is hysterical to watch in that context, and. Um, and then I take a step back and say, well, I was a fifth grade boy uh, playing basketball in the playground. And in a lot of ways, I am still a fifth grade boy playing basketball in the playground. And so uh, we all want to not just remember our successes and forget our failures, uh, but as we just talked about, uh, uh, impute our successes to how brilliant, smart, well-read, and educated we are, and impute our failures to bad luck. And if you write them down along with, with the whys, uh, that's, that's a really good, helpful way to do it. When I worked, uh, when I worked on Wall Street, I worked on a, on a fixed income trading floor uh, in New York, and worked with uh, huge institutional clients, and we kept uh, running notebooks all the time, and we kept them in in those composition books, those black and white mm-hmm. uh, composition books, because uh, you couldn't take out the bad pages <laughs> with with a running list of. You know, I kept a running list of what I said, what I had advised, the trades we did. And and what became of them, and uh, the inability to tear out pages was painful sometimes, but but instructive. And if we, uh, I mean, some some mistakes we're just going to remember, uh, but we're going to forget a lot of them if we don't actively uh, work to remember them. Whether it's in a whether it's in a trade book or some other some other mechanism. I think Michael Batnick talked about that in a, in a blog post this week that he started to, uh, every trade he did, he wrote down why he, the rationales for why he did it and then went back to look at it later. And he said it was also laughably bad. It ended up curing him of the problem. Um, and, and, um, I'm not quite as confident in my ability to be cured but uh, I think he's absolutely on the right track. Well, you know, this, this concept you mentioned is, <clears throat> is a bit of a mutation of the fundamental attribution error where, you know, if, if we do something bad, <clears throat> we, we chalk it up as being down to situational uh, variables. And if someone else does something bad, it's because they are at their core, you know, an evil person. You know, if I, if I cut you off in traffic, it's because 
I haven't had my coffee yet. If, if you cut me off in traffic, it's because you're an evil guy. Uh, and so we have to learn about this, this natural tendency to, to, to try and be good to ourselves and, and equate every good thing we do as being deeply down to us and every mistake we make as being contextual. Uh, and it's a, it's a very tough thing to do, but it's very powerful. Uh, and it's, you know, one of the things that I love about behavioral finance is I feel like it's just lessons for good living. I mean, le- learning to own up to your mistakes, learning to take responsibility, to understand that, you know, other people have situational constraints and, and do things for, for reasons that don't owe to, to, to their being nasty people. I feel like there's so much you can learn about yourself as a, as a human uh, and as a parent and as a, you know, as a spouse from, from these things. And it's part of why I find it so fascinating. I think that's great advice. <clears throat> so the last one that we're going to focus on, we're going to make people go read, go read the post if they want all the goodness, but uh, we're going to talk about staying humble. And so one of the themes that I, that I touch on a great deal in, in the behavioral investor is that one of the things, uh, that we see is that things that have served us well evolutionarily uh, over the you know over the course of, of hundreds of thousands of years uh, don't serve us well in financial markets. And I think overconfidence is is just one of these things. You know, overconfidence has been shown to uh, land you a more attractive mate. Overconfidence makes you a more viable political candidate, as we're seeing with increasing frequency. Um, you know, overconfidence helps us bounce back from setbacks. Overconfidence leads us to open restaurants and start small businesses, both of which are, you know, probabilistically nightmarish. So how do we overcome, you know, hundreds of thousands of years of, of evolutionary pull to be cocky uh, when it's such a disaster for, for us as investors? Marriage is a good place to start. <laughs> Second. Um, you know, I'm, I am, I hope the first to admit that I married up and married well, and she's a really good check on my being stupid. Um, if, 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 if she's not convinced or if she smells trouble, uh, I have learned to go with that. And uh, spouses are really effective at at popping our balloons when we're being stupid. Uh, other things to do are, you know, in a business context, uh, to have an accountability partner of some kind. Uh, uh, Daniel Kahneman is is much more pessimistic about our abilities to uh, impact and and overcome our inherent biases than I am. Uh, but the one thing he has suggested and, and well, I asked him what we once in a small group setting, what we could do to overcome our biases. And after he said, not a lot, um, he took a second and then he said, well, probably the best thing you can do is have your, uh, is regularly have your smartest and least mm-hmm. empathetic fa- friends tell you where and how you're stupid. Uh, and that's, that's actually, it's funny, but it's great advice. And uh, if you have accountability partners beyond your spouse who are, who are willing to say, uh, emperor, you're not wearing any clothes, that's pretty powerful. Uh, and especially if, if you're willing to listen and that's, that's, that's probably even harder than uh, arranging for the for the accountability partner is to is to pay attention to what they say because of course they're wrong. <laughs> so you know, I love I love your example of of the spouse, and I, I find that my wife serves a, a very similar role in in my own life, and I think she's the um, the more thoughtful and the more prudent of us would be would be putting it lightly. And, you know, one of the things why I think, um, you know, she's such a good check on my behavior is because there's there's unconditional love and support there. I think so many of us tie our self-worth to outcomes, and that's why we can't remember bad outcomes. Because if we have bad outcomes, then, you know, then we're bad people and we're stupid and we're flawed and whatever. 
But if you, you have, get out of bed in the morning, that's right. But if if you have someone who you know to use the uh, to use Carl Rogers' word uh, regards you unconditionally, you know when you when you have that unconditional positive regard, uh, you know that that person will support and care for you uh, even when you're stupid. And so there there opens up the avenues to have those more candid conversations. So I think that's, you know, again, that's waxing philosophical and getting kind of granola for a, for a financial conversation. But I think it's, I think there's something there uh, that, you know, you need, you need coworkers and peers and friends and, and partners that, that regard you uh, positively with, with unconditional support, which doesn't mean that they approve of everything you do in the least, but it means that they, you know, they won't think less of you for being an idiot from time to time, nor, nor you them. And it's why mentors are so important because uh, mentors, at least I know in my case, both from when I have been mentored and when I have acted as a mentor, uh, that is a very invested relationship when it's done right. Yes. And, and so for someone uh, knowledgeable in the business, in the mentor situation, uh, who has your best interest at heart, uh, willing to uh, suggest that maybe you're not as great as you think you are. Uh, that's pretty powerful stuff. Agreed. Even when we don't want to hear it. Yes. So, so Bob, we're going to make the we're going to make the listeners visit above the market blog to get the rest of the goodness. But as as we wrap up, I'm I am revisiting my clinical psychologist roots. And I'm going to ask you to free associate. You're going to lay on the chaise lounge. You're going to close your eyes and you're going to free associate uh, on a couple of terms. Uh, so uh, just tell me the first thing, you know, first words that come to your mind. So the, the first one is the future of behavioral finance. Finding what you're not looking for. Ooh, okay. You got to say more. Everything, everything we are is, is built to find what we're looking for. Um, let me give you the, an example. Uh, uh, in Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, Kahneman uh, describes the gorillas in the midst video as uh, probably the, the quintessential behavioral finance uh, metaphor. It's classic, right? Uh, when I looked at it the first time, like uh, sev- I think something like 70% of subjects, I never saw the gorilla. I was just counting passes, and I was dumbfounded by how oblivious I was. Um, you know, and, and Kahneman suggests that's proof that we're blind to the obvious and that we are blind to our blindness. Uh, but it seems to me equally clear that we're not that oblivious because of, of uh, what we have done uh, in terms of human progress. Uh, you know, look around. Uh, we've, we've achieved an incredible amount. Um, and, and that's because uh, we do what we set out to do for good and for ill. Uh, we miss the gorilla because we are counting the passes. The task we are given was to count the passes. And so within that context, missing the gorilla uh, isn't all, shouldn't be all that surprising. It's yeah. like when I'm, watch, when I'm watching a baseball game and I'm focusing on the pitcher and the hitter, uh, I might miss the positioning changes the outfielders take because of the pitch that's been called by the catcher. Uh, and so um, where I'm going with this is that what people are looking for rather than what people are merely looking at determines what's obvious and and if we can uh, build some systems and some practices that will allow us to find what we're not looking for uh, we'll be a lot better off well, i i was not looking for that answer but i love it it was is very unexpected and, and very thoughtful so the second one uh who will play in the 2019 world series well, uh, regular readers will know um, I write a lot about how bad forecasting is, and in <laughs> fact, uh, and how, and in fact, most years uh, when ESPN asks their forty-seven 
at least at last count, there were 47 full-time baseball experts or alleged experts working for ESPN, and none of the 47 most years come up with the correct teams in the World Series. And I'm not any better than they are. Uh, but I'm, if, if you're putting me on the spot and asking me to make a guess, I'm going to guess uh, the Nats and the Yankees. The Nats and the Yankees. Um, yep. What a nightmare that would be for me as a. <laughs> oh, I, I would love it in terms of the Nats, uh, who I root for second only to the Padres. And the Padres aren't quite there yet, although I, <laughs> I'm hopeful we'll be a lot better. But the, the Yankees would totally be, would totally be a nightmare. Yeah, I as as a Cardinals fan, you know, I I I think I've got this right. I think we've got eleven rings, and they've I think we're second to their twenty seven. So I'm I'm trying to we're we're trying to play catch up there. We have a little ways to go. I can't I can't see the Yankees getting getting another ring. Can't happen. I know I I wouldn't like it, but I'm I'm not going to bet against it. I like it. Keep staying objective, looking at the data, and then the last <laughs> one, <laughs> the last one being a, being a grandparent. Oh, being a grandparent is just a blast. Uh, you get m- most of the fun of being a parent, uh, but none of the responsibility of turning them into good people. Uh, so, so you can just have fun, and you know you can sugar them up and send them home, and that's fantastic. Well, sh- <laughs> sugar them up and don't worry about turning them into good people is actually my parenting style. So I'm going to have to make. <laughs> <laughs> try try a little harder, uh, Bob. The last question. Uh, the last question before you tell you where people can find you. Uh, what's a book that changed your life? What's a book or an idea that changed your life for the better? Well, I'm. There are a number of them I I would put on that list. Uh, the one relatively recently uh, that changed me a lot was was Marilyn Robinson's novel Lila. Uh, she wrote uh, a trilogy of novels, the first of which, Gilead, won the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, the second one, entitled Home, was really good. Uh, but Lila uh, was just amazing. And uh, its focus on uh, forgiveness and grace and tenderness in the midst of dreadful circumstances was really powerful to me, especially in the in the polarized times in which we live. Mm. Well, I have made a note to check it out because that is a message I think uh, we can all use a lot more of. So, Bob, if people have enjoyed this conversation as uh, half as much as I have, where can people connect with you on social media? Where can they read your writing? Uh, they can read my writing at uh, at my site, which is rpcwrite.com. R-P-S-E-A-W-R-I-G-H-T dot com. And my Twitter handle is the same, at R-P-C Wright. Bob, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real joy. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, and its affiliates, subsidiaries, employees, and agents. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon the information participants consider reliable and Dr. Crosby and Guardian are not responsible for the consequences of any decisions or actions taken because of the information provided. Guardian trademark and the Guardian G trademark logo are registered service marks and are used with express permission. All materials are subject to United States copyright laws. Copyright 2018 Guardian.